It is April 21st, 2012, and a sure sign of the apocalypse because it's sunny out here in Oregon. I don't think we've seen sun in a year and a half. But despite the sun, you get the 88th quack cast. Now, before I proceed with said quack cast, there's a little bit of free me out there for those that want it. I'm waiting for Apple to approve me so that I can sell my Puss Whisperer on the iBook store. You can pick it up for free until I can sell it over on the website. It is both the text and the audio of my Puss Whisperer. Because the world needs more Mark Chrislop. This particular quack cast is called Drinking from the Fire Hose, Odds and Ends on the Gasping Oppression. When influenza first came out in the world 500 years ago, 502 years ago, it was called the Gasping Oppression. I like that term. I spend most of my time taking care of hospitalized patients with acute infection. And issues of public health are, outside of infection control, not a high professional priority. Vaccinations and training were always like clean water and fresh food. Their benefit was a given, and I never needed to consider the benefits and subtleties of vaccination. There was just so much time in a day, and I was more concerned with learning about AIDS and endocarditis and meningitis than to worry about the ins and outs of vaccination, which was, after all, something for kids, and I'm an adult infectious disease doctor. That's not how I behave, that's who I take care of. My motto is, you're only young once, but you can be immature all your life. One of the many benefits of doing this podcast, this award-winning podcast, and being the chair of infection control, is that it is a stimulus to keep up on aspects of medicine I might not otherwise pay close attention to, like vaccines. I've been far more interested in vaccines, especially influenza vaccines, since I started practice in 1990 than I ever was in the decade I spent in training. Vaccination and the efficacy of vaccines is not as straightforward as I would have thought 30 years ago. It was then, give a vaccine, generate an antibody, and voila, the patient is protected. The vagaries of the flu vaccine are even more pronounced, since response to the vaccine is variable, and the population has never been vaccinated at levels more than 90%, where you could suspect that maybe herd immunity would kick in, despite the lack of perfect efficacy of the vaccine. My ideal flu vaccine study which would be both impossible and unethical, would be to vaccinate everybody west of the Mississippi and vaccinate no one to the east. It's no coincidence that me and mine all live in the west and study both the short and long-term effects. Until that day, I am stuck with a hodgepodge of medical studies that look at the results of influenza vaccination and do add insights into the disease and its prevention. This week, I thought it would be fun Yeah, that's my definition of fun. I wonder why I'm never invited to parties. But I thought it would be fun to mention some interesting studies about influenza, the vaccine, and flu immunity that have come out in the last two years. This is not meant to be anything more than a compilation of articles I thought were interesting. And the only purpose is to give a hint as to the complexities of influenza and vaccination. How did I choose these articles? Every two weeks I do an infectious disease update podcast. It's called the PusCast over on iTunes. And I went through my influenza-related PDFs for the last two years. 
Much to my surprise, I had read over 250 influenza-related articles. Is that a lot, or is that a little? Well, in the same time frame, there were 12,411 articles on PubMed concerning influenza. So, I read about 2% of the influenza literature for my PUSCast. But on the other hand, that only represents 0.6% of the roughly 4,000 articles I read in the same period. I am always impressed with the extent of what I have yet to learn compared to what I know. So much knowledge, so little time to consume it, and such a little tiny brain. Dr. Richard Bryant, my attending as a medical student, and one of the big reasons I went into infectious diseases, and I've never forgiven Dr. Bryant for that, said reading the medical literature is like drinking from a fire hose. Oh well. Here's what I think is interesting, curious, or important about influenza in the last year. A sip from the deluge. Belief is what you do when there is an absence of facts. One of the aggravating issues at the hospital is getting healthcare providers to get the flu vaccine. The best I can do in my institutions is about 70% of employees get vaccinated. Across the country, those numbers are about the same, although doctor and RN vaccination rates hover a little higher at around 80%. This is pathetic. Since I have the old-fashioned idea, it is incumbent upon us to protect our patients, especially given that nosocomially, i.e. hospital-acquired flu, has a 27% mortality rate. More than one in four who get flu in the hospital die. And people shed the flu before they are ill or likely to come to work when ill. Quote, we estimated that 1 to 8% of infectiousness occurs prior to the onset of illness. Only 14% of infections were detectable with PCR were asymptomatic and viral shedding was low in these cases, end quote. Silent shedders, and I will not try to say that three times really fast, it sounds worse than toy boat, may be unimportant as the outpatient, but if it were a nurse or a respiratory therapist or a physician going from room to room, it could result in a rapid spread of disease. The anti-vaccine wackaloons see low vaccination rates in healthcare workers as an indictment of the vaccine, that healthcare workers know something the rest of us do not. That is not the case. I have wandered the hospital giving flu shots, and I hear the same old, same old lame reasons given by healthcare workers as the general population. Although you'd think healthcare workers should know better since they ostensibly have access to all the information and the best minds, mine of course, in the field. I publish an article every year over on Medscape called A Budget of Dumbasses a listing of why healthcare workers are a dumbass for not getting the flu vaccine. And you know, it's weird. People seem to take exception at being called a dumbass. But I think if you're a healthcare worker and you don't get the flu vaccine, you are a dumbass. What factors are important in healthcare workers getting the flu vaccine? Quote, knowing that the vaccine is effective. Hey, it's effective! Being willing to prevent influenza transmission, what healthcare worker wouldn't want to do that? Believing that influenza is highly contagious, why do you need to believe it? It is highly contagious. Believing that influenza prevention is important, you want to be taken care of by a healthcare worker that does not think influenza prevention is important. And having a family that is usually vaccinated 
were statistically significantly associated with a two-fold higher vaccine intake. So remember, if your healthcare provider has not had the vaccine, they are likely to be unwilling to prevent flu transmission, do not believe flu is contagious, and do not believe that influenza prevention is important. Do you really want someone like that taking care of you and yours? Although infected healthcare workers markedly increase your risk of influenza and influenza-like illness if you are exposed in the hospital, quote, for patients exposed to at least one contagious healthcare worker compared to those with no documented exposure in the hospital, the relative risk was 5.48. For patients exposed to at least one contagious patient, the relative risk of getting influenza-like syndrome was 17.96. And for patients exposed to at least one contagious patient and one contagious healthcare worker, the relative risk of developing influenza-like illness was 34.78. Remember that during flu season, influenza accounts for maybe 10% of all influenza-like illnesses. Part of the problem is there have been no studies to demonstrate that specifically vaccinating hospital workers will decrease influenza in patients. There is certainly buckets of biologic plausibility to suggest that if I do not get the flu because of the vaccine, I will not pass it on to you as I make rounds in the ICU. There have been studies to suggest the benefit in nursing homes of vaccinating healthcare workers, but of course, nursing homes are not the same as acute care hospitals, where the length of stay is increasingly measured in hours rather than days, and lessening the risk of exposure. The literature now has an extremely suboptimal study that suggests vaccinating healthcare workers decreases influenza in the hospital. Quote, in summary, our observational study, bummer, observational study, indicates a protective influence of vaccination of more than 35% of healthcare workers on hospital-acquired infection in patients. Other experimentally designed investigations are needed to demonstrate the effectiveness of healthcare worker vaccination in the control of influenza outbreaks in healthcare settings, and to determine the threshold for vaccinated healthcare worker proportion with more accuracy. Our findings must not be misinterpreted. To date, the healthcare worker vaccination rate of 35% is not optimal to control hospital acquired influenza. End of quote. But I will take what I can get, since the more that are vaccinated, the fewer that will get the disease. What is curious to my mind is why people would think otherwise about the vaccine. So here's my advice to you and yours during the flu season. If admitted to the hospital, you are probably in a population at risk for dying from influenza. And if your provider has not had the vaccine, they are less likely to be convinced of the contagiousness of flu and its seriousness. They are likely a dumbass. And you do not want a dumbass involved with your health care. You need to request another health care worker and forbid them from entering your room. If anyone from my family is admitted to the hospital, especially my mother, I will not allow anyone into her room who has not had the vaccine for influenza. I suggest you do the same. And it won't be easy to do. The last thing you want to do is piss off the person who's going to be bringing you your morphine later on in the day. But we need to get a change in the culture of the hospital. But 
No one's going to be an uppity patient but me. I know that. Oh well, it's a good idea that probably will never work. Since the flu vaccine is not close to 100% effective, there are other measures to help decrease the spread of disease. A career in infection control has consistently reinforced the idea that there never is just one intervention that completely decreases the risk of infection. And no one, again except for the anti-vaccine wackaloons, think that the vaccine is the end-all, be-all of prevention. However, simple mechanical issues often do not demonstrate the benefit we would like. Good hand washing and masks are only a variable help in outbreak situations. Quote, During the 2009-10 and the 2010-11 pandemic season, Dr. Buchholz and colleagues compared 84 households in which one member had influenza. The households were randomized into three groups. Face mask use and intensified hand hygiene, face mask only, and no intervention. Among 218 non-infected contacts in the 84 households, 16% developed flu. An intention-to-treat analysis found no benefit from face masks and hand washing, nor from face masks alone. Bummer. Other evaluations on the effect of mask and hand washing have also showed lack of benefit for prevention in flu season. Quote, among the household contacts, 31% became infected. Hand washing was not found to have significant benefit, and face mask use was associated with a modest increase in the risk of influenza infection. Bummer. Why would it have an increased risk? Perhaps people felt cavalier and were more likely to get in the flu patient's face. And, as we will see, flu can be passed through the eyes. So that is why I would prohibit the unvaccinated healthcare worker from entering my room, even if masked. Although there are some hospitals in my area that are having workers who are not vaccinated wear a mask. Me? I should probably wear a mask for aesthetic reasons. There is a difference, however, between using a mask and hand washing in the community to prevent acquisition, which is only of perhaps modest effect and is probably not the same as masking an infected person to prevent the spread in the hospital. Given that hand hygiene is often not 100%, however, I would be further disinclined to allow the unvaccinated healthcare worker in a mask to touch me and mine, never knowing for sure where those hands have been. Actually, I do know where those hands have been. You ought to be ashamed. It is doubly interesting since there was a proof-of-concept study to demonstrate that the route of flu infection may be through the eyes. Volunteers were squirted with live flu vaccine while wearing various protective measures, and as long as there was no eye protection, they became infected with the vaccine strain. I suppose if my unvaccinated healthcare worker wore a spacesuit, I would let them into my mom's room, but otherwise, no way. There will be an addendum at the end of this podcast that shows a recent real-world, i.e. messy and incomplete, example of flu being spread in the hospital. There were two groups who had an inordinate mortality from the H1N1 pandemic. That was the obese and the pregnant, and both are targets for vaccination. The obese and the pregnant are a lot alike in their physiology which is a slightly pro-inflammatory state that leads to a predilection for flaming out from influenza. It is harder to get the pregnant female 
but not the pregnant male. I live in Oregon, where we do have the one pregnant male, to take anything for fear of affecting the fetus. But the flu is bad for the baby. Babies in utero during the 1919 pandemic had, quote, reduced educational attainment, increased risks of physical disability, lower income, and were more likely to vote libertarian. No, that last was just a joke. Just a joke. Yeah, that's the ticket. And babies who were from vaccinated mothers are larger. Quote, during this period, the proportion of infants who were small for gestational age was lower in the influenza vaccine group than in the control group. 25.9% versus 44.8%. P equal 0.03. The mean birth rate was higher among infants whose mothers received the influenza vaccine than among those who received the control vaccine during this period. Given that the epidemiologic data suggests that pandemic influenza caused first trimester carriages in about 1 in 10 pregnant women in 1919, besides covering your own ass from dying from flu while pregnant, not getting the flu would be of great benefit to your still unborn child. And that benefit, interestingly, continues after birth. Quote, influenza vaccine given to pregnant women is 91.5% effective in preventing hospitalization of their infants for influenza in the first six months of life. Whoa. And it's harmless. So unvaccinated pregnant women are more likely to have smaller kids, stupider kids, poorer kids, and have a miscarriage in the first trimester are more likely to have their child admitted flu influenza, and they themselves are more likely to die from flu. Hmm. If I were pregnant, I would get my flu vaccine. We all know that clinical trials are filled with bias. The purpose of the scientific method is to try and minimize that bias. I have always assumed that the bias results in an overestimation, not an underestimation, of therapeutic benefits in studies. That is part of the decline effect in clinical medicine. As you weed out the bias, the efficacy of treatments often declines. I had never considered that bias underestimates effectiveness since there is an inherent urge in researchers to find positive results. I have mentioned many times that statistical analyses makes me feel like a Mr. Gumby. My brain hurts! And I drop my statistics class every year for four years in college. Once they got past the bell-shaped curve, they lost me to brain hurt. To this day, I have to take most results of statistical analyses at face value. It turns out, however, that at least for the flu vaccine, bias in clinical trials may be underestimating the efficacy by about 10%. Quote, By simulating a case control study of influenza in children, we found the sources of bias we included when considered together more often led to an underestimation rather than an overestimation of the true vaccine benefit, end quote. Now, how widely the results are applicable to other interventions or studies that are not case control, I lack the intellectual wherewithal to say. Now, we like to say in the world of skeptics that association is not causation. But one of the effects of vaccination is prevention of complications of influenza, and that would be bacterial infections and vascular events. Quote, 
There was strong evidence for a link between influenza and myocardial infarction, i.e. heart attack, both in England and Wales. That's the country, not the mammal. This was not a veterinary study. Where 3.1% to 3.4% of myocardial infarction-associated deaths and 0.7 to 1.2% of myocardial-associated hospitalizations were attributable to influenza. And in Hong Kong, the corresponding figures were 3.9 to 5.6% and 3 to 3.3%. And, quote, in a retrospective chart review of 119 individuals admitted to the hospital with H1N1 infection, seven patients, 6%, were found to have experienced thrombotic vascular events. Those of you who listen to my PUSCast know the bee in my bonnet, that infection leads to inflammation, inflammation is prothrombotic, and that leads to all manner of vascular events, strokes, heart attacks, pulmonary emboli, all occur after a variety of acute infections. Inflammation is bad, even when you are infected, but it is the price we often pay to survive infections. However, it is why I would never ever boost my immune system, because if you could really truly boost the immune system, as I've said before, you're going to get a stroke, or a heart attack, or another thrombus. Also, bloodstream infections go up with the influenza season, primarily due to Streptococcus pneumoniae, which is a secondary bacterial infection of Haemophilus influenza, and pneumonia goes up as well during influenza season, and it lagged behind the onset of flu by about a week, which is what you would expect. A lot of badness is associated with the flu, but at least heart attacks could be prevented. Quote, the incidence of acute myocardial infarction was significantly reduced in the 60 days following vaccination. Hmm, pretty good. The coolest article of the year suggests that we actually may be on the path to a universal flu vaccine. Now, every year, the structure of the flu proteins drift. And every 25 years or so, there's an entirely new strain from genetic reassortment or a shift. It is why we need a vaccination every year. However, they have discovered a site on the influenza hemagglutinin protein called FI6 that has, quote, broadly neutralizing antibody that recognizes all 16 hemagglutin subtypes, including emerging ones such as H5N1. H5N1 is bird flu for the alphanumerically disinclined. So if you are lucky, after the vaccine or after the disease, you could develop an antibody against the FI6 site and subsequently be immune to all subsequent strains of flu. I say luck as researchers screened 104,000 peripheral blood plasma cells from eight recently infected or vaccinated donors to find one cell making that specific antibody. I wonder how come we never get these advances from homeopaths and naturopaths and acupuncturists, etc. It always seems to be real science that leads to improvement in healthcare. Now, why the production of broadly neutralizing antibody occurs rarely is an unanswered question, although some are lucky enough to make such an antibody. 
It might partially explain why seasonal influenza infection confers cross-protection against pandemic flu, while vaccination does not. But it does make the whole issue of efficacy of vaccine that much more interesting. You get the vaccine, and depending on what part of the vaccine you react to, you could have more or less chance of disease and more or less chance of disease severity. And if you're lucky, you could become universally resistant to influenza. Hopefully, they will be able to force or trick the immune system into recognizing the FI6 epitope more reliably, and we may be able to eradicate influenza. Well, maybe B, since it is only in humans. Influenza A is a zoonosis, and maybe not so much. But we would at least, perhaps, have one vaccine that you need once in a lifetime but not with the current vaccination rates. But I can dream. First, there was smallpox, then rinderpest. Rinderpest, by the way, is the animal equivalent of measles. I always forget that we get measles from animals or did animals get measles from us. That's been worked out as who gave it to whom, and measles did occur after we started having more farming. So if I remember right, rinderpest came to humans and became measles. It's a good thing Andrew Wakefield was not a veterinarian, or we'd still have Renderpest. But maybe someday, influenza. Complications of the vaccine are always a concern, although they're very tiny. And the big one with H1N1 was Guillain-Barré syndrome, GBS, which also is short for Group B strep. It's always hard in medicine because we have too many acronyms. Since after the 1976 flu vaccine, there was an uptick in cases of Guillain-Barré a complication never adequately explained and never repeated. Not only was the H1N1 vaccine not associated with group B strep, no, Guillain-Barre syndrome, but the flu itself had a higher association with Guillain-Barre. And you will be relieved to know that if you had Guillain-Barre in the past, you can probably be vaccinated safely. These Lunatics, well, not really, but in Kaiser Permanente, they found all the patients who'd had prior diagnosis of Guillain-Barre syndrome and looked at those who had vaccination, and they found no cases of recurrent Guillain-Barre after influenza vaccine and none within six weeks of any vaccine. I am impressed with the power that is Kaiser Permanente. I could never convince a Guillain-Barre patient to receive a vaccine subsequently. None of the studies I have mentioned are definitive, but if you are the fan of preponderance of data, it would seem that influenza is bad and vaccines are good. There are numerous other interesting articles on antibiotic resistance and the efficacy of the vaccine and the fact that two years ago it was the 500th anniversary of the gasping oppression, which I did not mention. But there is always more to learn about influenza. The following addendum is a true story. When I first heard it, I thought they had made it up to make a point. I did not write the text, but it did occur at a Portland hospital in mid-March, and I reproduce it with permission. As a reminder, we have added patient stories to meetings as a way of bringing the patient into the room, clarifying the context for our quality plan, and emphasizing the complexities and importance of the work we are undertaking. 
Today's story is about a group of patients, a nurse, and influenza. It starts with patient number one, a 47-year-old woman admitted through the emergency department in mid-March with fevers and shortness of breath. She was transferred to an inpatient unit with a mask on, which triggered the staff on receiving units to implement droplet precautions. Initially thought to have pneumonia, testing confirmed her symptoms were the result of influenza A, H1N1. After four nights in the hospital, she was discharged home after an uneventful hospital stay, and she got a flu shot. Patient number two, next door to patient number one, is a 61-year-old man who was admitted in early March for a GI bleed with multiple comorbidities. His progress was steady until nine days after admission when he developed a new fever and respiratory symptoms. These symptoms developed on the same day of patient one's admission. Influenza was suspected two days following the development of this fever, and the staff implemented droplet precautions. Lab testing confirmed influenza type A. He remained in the hospital for two more days and received a flu shot before being transferred to a skilled nursing facility. I wish they called the flu vaccine, because the flu shot makes it sound like you're giving them the flu. Down the hall, patient number three, a 71-year-old man, was admitted two days after patient number one for acute stroke and urinary tract infection. On day three of his hospitalization, he developed a fever and cough. Lab testing confirmed influenza A. Droplet precautions were ordered, with the lab test was positive for influenza. He remained hospitalized an additional four nights, and he received a flu shot before being discharged. Patient number four, a 73-year-old man down the hall from the first two patients and around the corner from patient number three, was admitted on the same day as patient number one following a fainting event at home. Due to his long-standing heart issues, he was kept overnight for observation and discharged the following morning. However, he returned to the ED three days later with continued symptoms. He was discharged from the ED only to return the next day with shortness of breath. Six hours after being readmitted, the staff suspected influenza and ordered droplet precautions. His lab test turned positive for influenza type A. After spending three nights in the hospital, he was discharged home. The following day, he was admitted to the intensive care unit and continued receiving treatment as an inpatient for secondary pneumonia, a complication of his influenza type A infection. The fifth person in our story is a nurse on the unit where these four patients were admitted. She works on a nursing unit whose hand hygiene performance is currently 67% and where 85% of the unit staff were vaccinated for this year's seasonal influenza. The particular nurse in this case, however, was one of only nine on the unit who chose not to be vaccinated. Her manager stated the reason the nurse gave for not receiving the vaccine was she, quote, was not convinced of the evidence that vaccine protects patients from transmission. She said she would get the vaccine if she truly believed it protected her patients, but that she didn't, end quote. She doesn't listen to my podcasts. This nurse cared for patient number one on her first day of admission. She cared for patient two on the eighth and ninth day when he developed flu symptoms of his stay. She also cared for patient three on the first two days of his inpatient stay. There does not appear to be any direct contact with this nurse and patient number four. Our nurse in our story developed symptoms consistent with influenza three days after working with patient number one and patient number two, which is the usual one to four day incubation period for influenza. 
Due to symptoms, she only worked a partial shift that day. Suspecting her symptoms may be influenza, she used the mask until relief staff was available. She was returned home and was able to take care of herself without medical intervention. She was not tested for influenza and remained off work for one week. She is still undecided about receiving the flu vaccine. That's the end of the anecdote. It's not as clear-cut as one would like. However, it does appear to be a small outbreak of influenza by way of a health care provider who did wear her mask when sick. So remember, if you're sick in the hospital, don't let the unvaccinated health care worker take care of you and yours. And that ends the 88th Quackcast. Don't forget to go online and write me glowing reviews to feed my ravenous yet fragile ego. Otherwise, not much to tell you. See you next time. Bye.